I'm glad you could join me this morning for a time in God's Word. And when I was about six years old, our family van just stopped in the middle of the driveway. And that was it. It wasn't going forward. It wasn't going backward. It wasn't going anywhere. Within about a day, we'd rented a sedan. And what fascinated me about this new car was that the place where the stuff went in the back was completely separate from the place where the people went in the front. That raised all kinds of questions for me, very similar to the questions I long had about the fridge, like, does the light in the trunk really go out when you close the door? And what would it be like on the inside when the door's closed in the garage with no one else around? These were perfectly reasonable questions for a six-year-old. Now, it wasn't that I'd been sneaking downstairs at night to watch mob movies. I just needed to know what it was like to be stuffed in the back of a car. Now, being the wiser, older brother, I managed to convince my younger brother, a four-year-old, that this was a cooperative venture, that this was an important part of our education as children. So I brought him along, and without telling anyone, we went to the garage, we climbed in the trunk, and we slammed the door behind us. Now, the light question was immediately answered. It was dark which was really cool for about two minutes, then less cool, and then finally, terrifying. For some reason, there was no obvious handle in, on the inside. And within five minutes, we were crying, screaming, uh, pounding the door, kicking and whimpering. It was only after about 10 minutes, after we realized that no one was coming to get us, that no one could hear us, that we were helpless that I finally remembered what it was to be an older brother. I got us to calm down and we started to methodically search this small space in the back of this red little car. We finally found a little handle that opened us up to the outside world and we ran crying to mom and dad, as you'd expect us to. Helplessness, whether it's a feeling experience for a few short minutes or, or whether it haunts us for a lifetime, is a horrible feeling. But it's an experience that has more value, more importance than we might first suspect. We're going to spend some time in John chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up and take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now the pool of Siloam was an interesting place. It was near to one of the entrances to Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate, not far from the temple. Though near the Sheep Gate, this man did not feel like one of the beloved sheep of Israel. That was not the experience of his life. There were no laws that required buildings to provide ramps and railings to make it easier for someone like this. If you were lame like this man, you weren't even allowed into the temple. But you could certainly go to a place like this. Archaeologists have identified two pools side by side that match the description of this area. About as large as a football field, about 20 feet deep. And there were roofed colonnades, four porches going around the outside and one in between the two pools. So there was a lot of space to get into these pools, which is good news. They had a reputation for healing. There was a, a spring that fed these pools, not constantly, but at intervals from time to time. And there was a popular belief that for those few brief moments when the living water flowed into these pools, there was a healing power for anyone who got in. And that was his hope. It was for healing. With it, the world would open up to him. Without it, all was closed. But he couldn't get into the pools. The size of a football field, and he couldn't do it. Not being Canadians, people jumped the lines soon as the water started to flow in and pushed ahead of him. And there was no one to help him out, to carry them in himself. Uh, why should they? What was he worth? And it had to be fast. The word for put him in the pool is literally toss him in. And it didn't happen. So when Jesus sees him lying there waiting, he knows that he's been waiting a long time to do this. How do you think the man felt when Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? Well, he misunderstands it. Of course he wants to be healed. He's wanted nothing else for the longest time. This is the story of a man whose whole life has been defined by one word, helplessness. Those are the contours of his whole existence. Helplessness isn't something that's ever been treasured or respected in our society or in any society. Now, that's not because we necessarily believe it's the fault of those who are helpless. We know it's not the same thing as Laziness, for example. Scripture is full of warnings against laziness, of calls to put it together, to put your shoulder to the wheel, to get to work. One of the classics is found in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 13 to 16. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and wearies him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. This really needs no comment. It's hilarious all by itself. We can imagine these scenes and they're not flattering. Now, I can't really relate to the one about not being able to bring your hand back to your mouth from the dish. But most of us 
have test-driven at least some version of these attitudes and of these actions, of exaggerating danger in order to avoid having to do some task that's set before us, of, of hitting the snooze button and turning over and over in your bed. When I was a teen, I had to put my alarm clock, a very loud alarm clock, all across, all the way across the room, and then heap up a pile of clothing over it in order to force myself to get up, excavate it, and finally turn it off. It was the only way to get the engine running. But helplessness is not laziness. It's something very different, and it has a different role to play, as we'll see. The Apostle Paul, for one, was neither of these things, not helpless, not lazy. He was constantly active, on the move, he was so busy that the book of Acts can barely keep up with him, and his letters hint of journeys, efforts, and dangers that the book of Acts, that early history of the Christian church, doesn't even hint at and doesn't know anything about. He was very hardworking, and all the while he avoided having others support him, working as a tent maker in order to make ends meet, appropriate since tents are a, a very good symbol for how he lived his life, going from place to place and seeking to spread the gospel wherever it was not known. Paul, he was a man of action. Paul's letters don't show that he necessarily expects that same rhythm from every Christian who he's writing to to challenge and encourage them, but he seems to expect something of him. Let's take a quick look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 11 to 12. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So that's the calling that he has for other Christians. Why is he calling for this independence though? This ability to support themselves the explanation for this is not hard to find. We'll take a look at Galatians chapter 6 and read verses 2 to 5. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, he's saying that you shouldn't be boasting by comparing yourself with others, that you should be bearing your own load, taking care of your own business. But what you see in verse 2 is related to what you see in verse 5. These two ideas connect. How can you bear another's burden when your own is unbearable? Paul did all kinds of burden-bearing for others, but he's never naive about it. Paul, after showing great confidence in the work that he's done amongst the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he pauses to make his thoughts clear. Verses 4 to 5. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So, other Christians may have looked at Paul, seen him as self-sufficient, as someone who took care of his own business, but he knew that all of it came from God. It's like one of those incredible uh, 
inverted pyramid routines you might see with acrobats in a circus. One very strong man standing at the bottom, two jumping up on his shoulders, and then three climbing up above them. Now it may look like those on the second level are doing a lot of the work, but ultimately it's the one at the bottom who carries everyone. And where he fails, where he falls, they all fall. So it is in the kingdom of God. To carry others, you have to lower yourself, to be beneath them. And in the end, you can only carry others because Jesus bears you up. But the modern world, much like the world that surrounded Jesus, is all about self-sufficiency, all about taking care of your own business, doing it yourself. That much, at least, matched what Paul was calling them to. Back then and today, we don't serve helplessness in this establishment. Sorry. Confident self-sufficiency is the template of the modern world. One of the most famous verses, uh, very often quoted dismissively by those who would rather not have God meddling in their affairs, is God helps those who help themselves. Of course, it's nowhere to be found in Scripture, but it's been around a long time. Something like it was being shared centuries before the time of Jesus, but it became widely popular when it was included in a popular almanac issued by a young printer by the name of Benjamin Franklin makes sense that he printed it. You could say that that saying was the defining characteristic of his life. God helps those who help themselves. Young Franklin had been a, an apprentice at his older brother's print shop starting at the age of 12, and he was definitely an underdog, but a hard-working one. Typesetting is hard work. It's manual work, and his older brother was very in charge. But sweat of his brow, work of his hands, he soon felt that he had things in hand, that he was in control of his own destiny. He learnt the ropes after a number of minor rebellions against his brother. He fled to Philadelphia, and after a few years, he was publishing his own newspaper. The rest of his life was a story of one success after another, always improving himself, always finding new ways to learn new things. If he was crossing an ocean in a boat, and that would take a long time, he wouldn't sit there in boredom. He would write letters. He would take soundings of the ocean floor to see how deep it was as he went along. Instead of avoiding an oncoming storm and staying warm inside, he'd take out a kite, stand under a shelter on an insulator, and learn a little something about electricity, inventing the lightning rod while he was at it, something that over the next few centuries saved hundreds or thousands of large buildings, often church steeples throughout America. He set himself daily rules for how to live. He set up libraries. He became a well-respected scientist, an influential diplomat, and an important revolutionary leader. He lived the kind of life that people back then and today envy. He wasn't sure God was helping him, but he was pretty sure he was helping himself. But the Bible teaches that the ones God helps are the ones who just can't. The same Paul, the one who told the churches to work hard, to be independent, self-supporting, he had another message to give. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
in a letter that shows a very human side to his character, a side that's sometimes insecure, never perfect, he comes up with a line that shows just how close he's, closely he's been listening to the words of the master. Paul had seen, experienced, uh, done wonderful things in his active life. But just a little bit later, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul doesn't very often quote directly the words of Jesus. But when I am weak, then I am strong. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus taught his disciples over and over again. Paul may not have been repeating the words of Jesus, but he was certainly teaching the lessons of Jesus. He'd obviously learned from the master. Jesus was a constant wellspring of sayings that at first glance seem to either contradict themselves or provide some kind of a shock to the system, a wake-up call. But these sayings always manage to slip into a deeper meaning for anyone who's paying attention, and Paul obviously was. Jesus would say things like, the first will be last, the last will be first. I'd like to see them work that rule into the next Olympic Games. Blessed are the poor, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul had been a student in the school of his master, and he knew that weakness had a role to play. Now, uh, Jesus had experienced weakness. He knew helplessness. Uh, he knew what it was to be overwhelmed, and yet he stands ready to carry each of us. He carried those who were helpless. Jesus went out to the poor and the oppressed, to those who could not help themselves. He knew, and Paul knew, that helplessness didn't have a bit character role. It was a role that was right at the center. It was a role with all the good lines. That it was a way that people found Jesus. But as Jesus says in Mark chapter 14, verse 7, the poor you will always have with you. For him, the main helpless population was those who were entangled by sin. His response to the helpless man after finding him again in the temple was, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He wasn't worried about failing leg muscles in spite of all the social damage that came with it. He was worried about the worst damage that sin could do. There was no lack of clarity in Jesus. He knew and he taught that sin will hurt, will damage, will destroy worse than any disease. That the helplessness of being hemmed in, surrounded by sin, held down by it, by anger, by lust, by greed, 
that it's the worst kind of helplessness available to you. And his warning is clear. You now know what it is to be helpless for 38 years you've experienced it. I tell you that it could be worse. Don't let it be. His greater helplessness was spiritual. But Jesus doesn't give that lesson to him right away. That's what's strange. He actually waits to bring this lesson to the man. He heals him. The man stands. And Jesus is lost in the crowd. He slips away like a ghost. It was a heel and run. What impression stayed on the man's mind after he'd been healed? I was helpless. I couldn't even move a few meters down to the pool to bathe in the vague hope that maybe, maybe it just might help. The impression was that of a lifetime of helplessness and then suddenly full empowerment, full restoration. And he knew that it wasn't by his own strength that he'd made that transition. Jesus gave him the chance to dwell on this, to incubate, to stew, to remember, to wait. Jesus, I think, sometimes does this and has probably done it for many of us. He gives us a chance to dwell on our own helplessness. He gives us a chance to soak up that lesson, to recognize our need, and then he finds us again. This isn't the only place this happens. For example, he does the very same thing in chapter 9 when he heals a blind man. Read this one as well and you'll see all kinds of parallels in both cases. They get the time to absorb it. He later finds them in the temple where they're vaguely seeking God in thankfulness. You maybe have noticed that. that People sometimes get spiritual. They seek religion when they feel that God or someone or something somehow has bailed them out from some physical circumstance in which they felt helpless, they felt powerless. And they cast about. They try and make sense of it. That's when Jesus tends to show up. The last couple of months have shown us how fragile our economy is, how fragile our society is. It was so quick, so rapid that things changed for so many of us. And how fragile we are. How can we be happy and healthy at one moment and, and, many, and some of us close to death just a few weeks later or a few days later? The lesson of how brittle we are is a real lesson learned over and over again for many of us until we see beyond the breakable to the unbreakable, to the resurrected. And in all of this, the role of helplessness is simple. It's a bright, shining, shadow-chasing neon light pointing us to Jesus, to the one who experienced our helplessness, who in death and through resurrection saves the seeker, the lost, the helpless. You don't look for a cure until you've been convinced that you are sick, and you don't find Jesus until you've recognized how much you need him. And in that story, helplessness plays the lead 